Section 35 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 2. Edited by Charles F. Horn. Rossiter Johnson and John Root. Rome becomes a monarchy. Part two. After his defeat, Antony felt it impossible the siege of Mutina. With Decimus Brutus in the town behind him, and the victorious legions of Octavius before him, his position was critical. He therefore prepared to retreat, and effected this purpose like a good soldier. His destination was the province of Narbonnes Gaul, where Lepidus had assumed the government and had promised him support, but the Senate also had hopes in the same quarter. Lucius Munatius Plancus commanded in northern Gaul, and Gaius Asinius Polio in southern Spain. Sextae Pompeius had made good his ground in the latter country and had almost expelled Polio from Baetica. Plancus and Polio, both friends and favorites of Caesar, had as yet declared neither for Antony nor Octavius. If they would declare for the Senate, Lepidus, a feeble and fickle man, might desert Antony, or if Octavius would join with Decimus Brutus, and pursue him, Antony might not be able to escape from Italy at all. But these political combinations failed. Plancus and Pollio stood aloof, waiting for the course of events. Decimus Brutus was not strong enough to pursue Antony by himself, and Octavius was unwilling, perhaps unable, to unite the veterans of Caesar with troops commanded by one of Caesar's murderers. And so it happened that Antony effected his retreat across the Alps, but not without extreme hardships, which he bore in common with the meanest soldier. It was at such times that his good qualities always showed themselves, and his gallant endurance of misery endeared him to every man under his command. On his arrival in Narbonnes Gaul, he met Lepidus at Forum Julii, Fregius, and here the two commanders agreed on a plan of operations. The conduct of Octavius gave rise to grave suspicions. It was even said that the consuls had been killed by his agents. Cicero, who had hitherto maintained his cause, was silent. He had delivered his fourteenth and last Philippic on the news of the first victory gained by Hertius but now he talked in private of removing the boy of whom he had hoped to make a tool. Octavius, however, had taken his part and was not to be removed. Secretly he entered into negotiations with Antony. After some vain efforts on the part of the Senate to thwart him, he appeared in the Campus Martius with his legions. Cicero and most of the senators disappeared, and the fickle populace greeted the young heir of Caesar with applause. 
though he was not yet twenty, he demanded the consulship, having been previously relieved from the provisions of the Lex Annalis by a decree of the Senate, and he was elected to the first office in the state with his cousin Quintus Pedius. A curate law passed by which Octavius was adopted into the patrician gens of the Julii, and was put into legal possession of the name which he had already assumed, Gaius Julius Caesar Octavianus. We shall henceforth call him Octavian. The change in his policy was soon indicated by a law in which he formally separated himself from the Senate. Pedius brought it forward. By its provisions, all Caesar's murderers were summoned to take their trial. Of course, none of them appeared, and they were condemned by default. By the end of September, Octavian was again in Cisalpine Gaul, and in close negotiation with Antony and Lepidus. The fruits of his conduct soon appeared. Plancus and Pollio declared against Caesar's murderers. Decimus Brutus, deserted by his soldiery, attempted to escape into Macedonia through Illyricum, but he was overtaken near Aquileia and slain by order of Antony. Italy and Gaul being now clear of the senatorial party, Lepidus as mediator arranged a meeting between Octavian and Antony upon an island in a small river near Bononia, Bologna. Here the three potentates agreed that they should assume a joint and coordinate authority under the name of Triumvirs for Settling the Affairs of the Commonwealth. Antony was to have the two Gauls, except the Narbonnes district, which, with Spain, was assigned to Lepidus. Octavian received Sicily, Sardinia, and Africa. Italy was for the present to be left to the consuls of the year, and for the ensuing year Lepidus, with Plancus, received promise of this high office. In return, Lepidus gave up his military force, while Octavian and Antony, each at the head of ten legions, prepared to conquer the eastern part of the empire, which could not yet be divided like the western provinces, because it was in possession of Brutus and Cassius. But before they began war, the triumvirs agreed to follow the example set by Scylla, to extirpate their opponents by a proscription, and to raise money by confiscation. They framed a list of all men's names whose death could be regarded as advantageous to any of the three, and on this list each in turn pricked a name. Antony had made many personal enemies by his proceedings at Rome, and was at no loss for victims. Octavian had few direct enemies, but the boy despot discerned with precocious sagacity those who were likely to impede his ambitious projects, and chose his victims with little hesitation. Lepidus would not be left behind in the bloody work. The author of the Philippics was one of Antony's first victims. Octavian gave him up and took as an equivalent for his late friend the life of Lucius Caesar, uncle of Antony. 
Lepidus surrendered his brother Paulus for some similar favor. So the work went on. Not fewer than three hundred senators and two thousand knights were on the list. Quintus Pedius, an honest and upright man, died in his consulship, overcome by vexation and shame at being implicated in these transactions. As soon as their secret business was ended, the triumphers determined to enter Rome publicly. Hitherto they had not published more than seventeen names of the proscribed. They made their entrance severally on three successive days, each attended by a legion. A law was immediately brought in to invest them formally with the supreme authority which they had assumed. This was followed by the promulgation of successive lists, each larger than its predecessor. Among the victims, far the most conspicuous was Cicero. With his brother Quintus, the old orator, had retired to his Tusculan villa after the Battle of Mutina, and now they endeavored to escape in the hope of joining Brutus in Macedonia, for the orator's only son was serving as a tribune in the liberator's army. After many changes of domicile they reached Astora, a little island near Antium, where they found themselves short of money, and Quintus ventured to Rome to procure the necessary supply. Here he was recognized and seized, together with his son. Each desired to die first, and the mournful claim to precedence was settled by the soldiers killing both at the same moment. Meantime Cicero had put to sea, but even in this extremity he could not make up his mind to leave Italy, and put to land at Circei. After further hesitation he again embarked, and again sought the Italian shore near Formiae. For the night he stayed at his villa near that place, and next morning would not move, exclaiming, Let me die in my own country, that country which I have so often saved. But his faithful slaves forced him into a litter, and carried him again toward the coast. Scarcely were they gone when a band of Antony's bloodhounds reached his villa, and were put upon the track of their victim by a young man who owed everything to the Cicero's. The old orator from his litter saw the pursuers coming up. His own followers were strong enough to have made resistance, but he desired them to set the litter down. Then, raising himself on his elbow, he calmly waited for the ruffians, and offered his neck to the sword. He was soon dispatched. The chief of the band, by Antony's express orders, hewed off the head and hands, and carried them to Rome. Fulvia, the widow of Claudius, and now the wife of Antony, drove her hairpin through the tongue which had denounced the iniquities of both her husbands. The head, which had given birth to the second Philippic, and the hands which had written it, were nailed to the rostra, the home of their eloquence. The sight and the associations raised feelings of horror and pity in every heart. Cicero died in his sixty-fourth year. 
Brutus and Cassius left Italy in the autumn of B.C. 44 and repaired to the provinces which had been allotted to them, though by Antony's influence the Senate had transferred Macedonia from Brutus to his own brother Caius, and Syria from Cassius to Dolabella. Gaius Antonius was already in possession of parts of Macedonia, but Brutus succeeded in dislodging him. Meanwhile, Cassius, already well known in Syria for his successful conduct of the Parthian War, had established himself in that province before he heard of the approach of Dolabella. This worthless man left Italy about the same time as Brutus and Cassius, and at the head of several legions marched without opposition through Macedonia into Asia Minor. Here Gaius Trebonius had already arrived, but he was unable to cope with Dolabella, and the latter surprised him and took him prisoner at Smyrna. He was put to death with unseemly contumely in Dolabella's presence. This was in February 43, and thus two of Caesar's murderers in less than a year's time felt the blow of retributive justice. When the news of this piece of butchery reached Rome, Cicero, believing that Octavian was a puppet in his hands, was ruling Rome by the eloquence of his Philippics. On his motion, Dolabella was declared a public enemy. Cassius lost no time in marching his legions into Asia to execute the behest of the Senate, though he had been dispossessed of his province by the Senate itself. Dolabella threw himself into Laodicea, where he sought a voluntary death. By the end of B.C. 43, therefore, the whole of the East was in the hands of Brutus and Cassius, but instead of making preparations for war with Antony, the two commanders spent the early part of the year 42 in plundering the miserable cities of Asia Minor. Brutus demanded men and money of the Lycians, and when they refused, he laid siege to Xanthus, their principal city. The Xanthians made the same brave resistance which they had offered five hundred years before to the Persian invaders. They burned their city and put themselves to death rather than submit. Brutus wept over their fate and abstained from further exactions but Cassius showed less moderation. From the Rhodians alone, though they were allies of Rome, he demanded all their precious metals. After this campaign of plunder, the two chiefs met at Sardis and renewed the altercations which Cicero had deplored in Italy. It is probable that war might have broken out between them had not the preparations of the triumphers waked them from their dream of security. It was as he was passing over into Europe that Brutus, who continued his studious habits amid all disquietudes, and limited his time of sleep to a period too small for the requirements of health, was dispirited by the vision which Shakespeare, after Plutarch, has made famous. It was no doubt the result of a diseased frame, though it was universally held to be a divine visitation. 
as he sat in his tent in the dead of night he thought a huge and shadowy form stood by him and when he calmly asked what and whence art thou it answered or seemed to answer i am thine evil genius brutus we shall meet again at philippi meantime antony's lieutenants had crossed the ionian sea and penetrated without opposition into thrace the republican leaders found them at philippi the army of brutus and cassius amounted to at least eighty thousand infantry supported by twenty thousand horse but they were ill supplied with experienced officers for marcus valerius messala a young man of twenty-eight held the chief command after brutus and cassius and horace who was but three-and-twenty the son of a freedman and a youth of feeble constitution was appointed a legionary tribune the forces opposed to them would have been at once overpowered had not antony himself opportunely arrived with the second corps of the triumviral army octavian was detained by illness at dyrrachium but he ordered himself to be carried on a litter to join his legions the army of the triumvirs was now superior to the enemy but their cavalry counting only thirteen thousand was considerably weaker than the force opposed to it the republicans were strongly posted upon two hills with entrenchments between the camp of cassius upon the left next the sea that of brutus inland on the right the triumviral army lay upon the open plain before them in a position rendered unhealthy by marshes antony on the right was opposed to cassius octavian on the left fronted brutus but they were ill supplied with provisions and anxious for a decisive battle the republicans however kept to their entrenchments and the other party began to suffer severely from famine determined to bring on an action antony began works for the purpose of cutting off cassius from the sea cassius had always opposed a general action but brutus insisted on putting an end to the suspense and his colleague yielded the day of the attack was probably in october brutus attacked octavian's army while cassius assaulted the working parties of antony cassius's assault was beaten back with loss but he succeeded in regaining his camp in safety meanwhile messala who commanded the right wing of brutus army had defeated the host of octavian who was still too ill to appear on the field and the republican soldiers penetrated into the triumvir's camp presently his litter was brought in stained with blood and the corpse of a young man found near it was supposed to be octavian's but brutus not receiving any tidings of the movements of cassius became so anxious for his fate that he sent off a party of horse to make inquiries and neglected to support the successful assaults of messala cassius on his part discouraged at his ill success was unable to ascertain the progress of brutus 
when he saw the party of horse he hastily concluded that they belonged to the enemy and retired into his tent with his freedman pindarus what passed there we know not for certain cassius was found dead with the head severed from the body pindarus was never seen again it was generally believed that pindarus slew his master in obedience to orders but many thought that he had dealt a felon blow the intelligence of cassius death was a heavy blow to brutus he forgot his own success and pronounced the elegy of cassius in the well-known words there lies the last of the romans the praise was ill-deserved except in his conduct of the war against the parthians cassius had never played a worthy part after the first battle of philippi it would have still been politic in brutus to abstain from battle the triumviral armies were in great distress and every day increased their losses reinforcements coming to their aid by sea were intercepted a proof of the neglect of the republican leaders in not sooner bringing their fleet into action nor did brutus ever hear of this success he was ill-fitted for the life of the camp and after the death of cassius he only kept his men together by largesse and promises of plunder twenty days after the first battle he led them out again both armies faced one another there was little manoeuvring the second battle was decided by numbers and force not by skill and it was decided in favor of the triumphers brutus retired with four legions to a strong position in the rear while the rest of his broken army sought refuge in the camp octavian remained to watch them while antony pursued the republican chief next day brutus endeavored to rouse his men to another effort but they sullenly refused to fight and brutus withdrew with a few friends into a neighboring wood here he took them aside one by one and prayed each to do him the last service that a roman could render to his friend all refused with horror till at nightfall a trusty greek freedman named strato held the sword and his master threw himself upon it most of his friends followed the sad example the body of brutus was sent by antony to his mother his wife portia the daughter of cato refused all comfort and being too closely watched to be able to slay herself by ordinary means she suffocated herself by thrusting burning charcoal into her mouth Masala, with a number of other fugitives sought safety in the island of thasos and soon after made submission to antony the name of brutus has by plutarch's beautiful narrative sublimed by shakespeare become a byword for self-devoted patriotism this exalted opinion is now generally confessed to be unjust brutus was not a patriot unless devotion to the party of the senate be patriotism toward the provincials he was a true roman harsh and oppressive he was free from the sensuality and profligacy of his age but for public life he was unfit his habits were those of a student his application was great 
his memory remarkable, but he possessed little power of turning his acquirements to account, and to the last he was rather a learned man than a man improved by learning. In comparison with Cassius he was humane and generous, but in all respects his character is contrasted for the worse with that of the great man from whom he accepted favors, and then became his murderer. The Battle of Philippi was in reality the closing scene of the Republican drama, but the rivalship of the triumvirs prolonged for several years the divided state of the Roman world, and it was not till after the crowning victory of Actium that the imperial government was established in its unity. We shall, therefore, here add a rapid narrative of the events which led to that consummation. The hopeless state of the Republican, or rather the Senatorial Party, was such that almost all hastened to make submission to the conquerors. Those whose sturdy spirits still disdained submission resorted to Sextae Pompeius in Sicily. Octavian, still suffering from ill health, was anxious to return to Italy, but before he parted from Antony, they agreed to a second distribution of the provinces of the empire. Antony was to have the eastern world, Octavian the western provinces. To Lepidus, who was not consulted in this second division, Africa alone was left. Sextae Pompeius remained in possession of Sicily. Antony at once proceeded to make a tour through western Asia in order to exact money from its unfortunate people. About midsummer, B.C. 41, he arrived at Tarsus, and here he received a visit which determined the future course of his life and influenced Roman history for the next ten years. Antony had visited Alexandria fourteen years before, and had been smitten by the charms of Cleopatra, then a girl of fifteen. She became Caesar's paramour, and from the time of the dictator's death Antony had never seen her. She now came to meet him in Cilicia. The galley which carried her up the Cydnus was of more than oriental gorgeousness, the sails of purple, oars of silver, moving to the sound of music, the raised poop burnished with gold. There she lay upon a splendid couch, shaded by a spangled canopy. Her attire was that of Venus. Around her flitted attendants, cupids, and graces. At the news of her approach to Tarsus, the triumvir found his tribunal deserted by the people. She invited him to her ship, and he complied. From that moment he was her slave. He accompanied her to Alexandria, exchanged the Roman garb for the Greco-Egyptian costume of the court, and lent his power to the queen to execute all her caprices. Meanwhile, Octavian was not without his difficulties. He was so ill at Brondusium that his death was reported at Rome, the veterans, eager for their promised rewards, were on the eve of mutiny. In a short time Octavian was sufficiently recovered to show himself, but he could find no other means of satisfying the greedy soldiery than by a confiscation of lands 
more sweeping than that which followed the proscription of Scylla. The towns of Cisalpine Gaul were accused of favoring Decimus Brutus, and saw nearly all their lands handed over to the new possessors. The young poet Virgil lost his little patrimony, but was reinstated at the instance of Pollio and Mecenas, and showed his gratitude in his first eclogue. Other parts of Italy also suffered. Apulia, for example, as we learn from Horace's friend Ophelus, who became the tenant of the estate which had formerly been his own. But these violent measures deferred rather than obviated the difficulty. The expulsion of so many persons threw thousands loose upon society, ripe for any crime. Many of the veterans were ready to join any new leader who promised them booty. Such a leader was at hand. Fulvia, wife of Antony, was a woman of fierce passions and ambitious spirit. She had not been invited to follow her husband to the east. She saw that in his absence imperial power would fall into the hands of Octavian. Lucius, brother of Mark Antony, was consul for the year, and at her instigation he raised his standard at Preneste. But Lucius Antonius knew not how to use his strength, and young Agrippa, to whom Octavian entrusted the command, obliged Antonius and Fulvia to retire northward, and shut themselves up in Perusia. Their store of provisions was so small that it sufficed only for the soldiery. Early in the next year, Perusia surrendered, on condition that the lives of the leaders should be spared. The town was sacked. The conduct of Lucius Antonius alienated all Italy from his brother. While his wife, his brother, and his friends were quitting Italy in confusion, the arms of Antony suffered a still heavier blow in the eastern provinces, which were under his special government. After the battle of Philippi, Quintus Labenus, son of Caesar's old lieutenant Titus, sought refuge at the court of Orodes, king of Parthia. Encouraged by the proffered aid of a Roman officer, Pacorus, the king's son, led a formidable army into Syria. Antony's lieutenant was entirely routed, and while Pacorus, with one army, poured into Palestine and Phoenicia, Quintus Labinus, with another, broke into Cilicia. Here he found no opposition, and, overrunning all Asia Minor, even to the Ionian Sea, he assumed the name of Parthicus, as if he had been a Roman conqueror of the people whom he served. End of section 35